for fighting for the faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, dishing up biblical discernment. It's Friday, September 12th, 2008. Time to kick up your heels. Get ready to enjoy the weekend. We're going to the baseball game tonight. Although the Angels have already clinched uh, a spot in the uh, playoffs. Man, the Angels were hot this year, except for the one game that I went to earlier in the season. Um, we've got... Uh, we, we're going out as a company outing. We're going to be going to uh, the Angel game tonight and enjoying some sports activities. Some spectatorship, if you would going to be awesome stuff and we're really looking forward to it and uh today is a it's a casual friday here at uh, fighting for the faith we'll be dishing up some uh some good discernment for you but we're going to take it a little bit lighter yeah and john baker our our production guy somebody said we need to find a you know have some kind of a of a nickname for john you know um we can call him the dodger because that's what he is he's a fanatical dodger fan he's wearing his dodger Jersey to the Angel game tonight. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> All right, we're going to dive into some listener email today. Uh, there's a few of them that I, I've been holding off on, wanted to get back to. Uh, remember last week we did the uh, sermon review from the church down in uh, Australia, do, uh, Pastor Dave Gilpin, and talking about man boobs in a sermon. Um, and uh, that sermon really went nowhere quick. And, um, and he, he, he basically preached about himself and I, you know, I asked a few of you folks if you would be willing to, uh, write some verse for us, you know, maybe a haiku. And I actually <laughs> got a couple here that I, that, uh, has made it past our email screener that are worth uh, reviewing. Roxy from, uh, Rhinebeck, New York, writing about Pastor Dave Gilpin's, uh, sermon, the man boobs sermon. Somebody wrote me and said that you should just shorten it and call him moobs. You know, remember that Seinfeld episode about the man's ear? <laughs> the bro? Oh, man. Why, why are we doing this in church? I, I just don't get it. Okay, so um, here's uh, Roxy's... Uh, I think hers is more of a limerick than a haiku. Although... Uh, I've got uh, uh, Matt wrote us, and he actually did a haiku. Uh, Roxy writes a little bit of a limerick. She writes, Dave the buffoon was on stage. He blathered on man boobs and beige. He called it a sermon. sermon. His mouth spewed out venom. I think he belongs in a cage. Thank you, Roxy. Yay! (laughs) Poetry reading here at Fighting for the Faith. Matt writes a haiku, a footprints haiku, based on Matt... Uh, at Dave Gilpin's uh, sermon, he writes, Footprints in beige sand. Look, here, there are two pair, but mine are going astray. That was deep. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, though, it's better than I could do. I I don't remember all the rules for a haiku, and I do remember when I was in high school and my uh, English teacher told me that I needed to write a uh, haiku. I, I think I failed miserably. I, I didn't get it. I'm more of a prose guy. Oh, man. All right, let's see here. Um, 
somebody hey wrote me and uh, and correct me yesterday we uh <laughs> we were ta- we did a review of uh the efforts by Triple X Church and um and what they're doing to quote fight pornography um yeah and uh, we had talked about uh, do the ends justify the means and we had talked about this one uh group that was engaging in something called flirty fishing and I couldn't remember the name of the group um, Walter writes, he says, I was listening to your show on September 11th and you mentioned flirty fishing. This was a tactic used by a cult called the Children of God during the 70s and 80s. Thanks for your ministry. It's much needed. Thank you, Walter, for uh, filling us in on our little historical holes there. So that that's the Children of God cult that was engaging in flirty fishing. Because um, when the ends justify the means, I mean, all means are possible. Um, Roxy wrote, and she, uh, regarding, uh, Dave Gilpin's uh, sermon that we reviewed last Friday, she says, uh, that was the most ridiculous mockery of believers, uh, meeting I've ever heard in my life. Were these adults in attendance? Oh, I'm sorry. This is not Dave Gilpin that she's, uh, reviewing. It's, uh, the, uh, Theologans for your noggins sermon <laughs> with the, uh, zucchini reading or telling us the story of. Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. All right. She says, that was the most ridiculous mockery of believers meeting I've ever heard in my life. Were these adults in attendance or was it a nursery job? I can hardly express my incredulity. God help the American church. I guess this uh, pastor hadn't read a minister's job is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, which says, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain uh, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now I've heard everything. Roxy who says that she kept hoping that uh, that sermon was a hoax. Unfortunately, it wasn't a hoax. And uh, this is the type of stuff that we bring to your attention in the hopes that uh, as laymen and pastors, as members of the body of Christ, we might be involved, get involved in um, overturning, correcting, reforming, and getting this silliness out of the church. It doesn't belong there. All right, now I've got a great uh, email question that came in. And uh, this one's going to actually require me to open up my Bible because um, in order to answer it, I've got to uh, get my ducks in a row, if you would. And uh, I'm going to Acts chapter 19 to prepare to answer this question regarding yesterday's show. Uh, Chris, I appreciate the recent show you did on Triple X Church. I agree with you that their tactics, which may work in their fight against pornography, are not a good reflection of the holiness and righteousness of God. It's a classic case of pragmatism. If it works, use it and let the ends justify the means. That's very sad. One comment I have, or maybe a question is this. Would you use the same argument you used uh, for how they fight pornography and not the sin nature that is the root cause of the pornography for, for other issues, such as abortion. Abortion is not the root cause, or should we stop fighting against abortion and aim at the deeper sin problem? I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm, I'm genuinely interested in your response. I heard an awesome sermon last year by Pastor John Piper. Uh, it was called The Greatest Thing, which spoke on sin being the root cause of every kind of evil in this world and how we need to keep that in perspective in our pursuit of justice. But where do we draw the line? If this makes sense at all, please let me know your thoughts. Great Great question, and this is a question from Jason from uh, Shakopee, Minnesota. I hope I pronounced that right. And um, 
there are ab- this is a great point and um let's start with the pragmatist the pragmatistic approach here first of all um the church has something to say against pornography the church has something to say against abortion um both issues are are very very important issues that uh, need to be dealt with appropriately by the church um i remember the days uh when uh operation rescue was just getting started i was working at focus on the family at the time and um they were pretty much accused of terrorist activity and you know i wouldn't say that uh, randall uh was in was really involved in terrorist activity depending on who you ask though um, which kind of gets to the the heart of the matter. Um, the, I'm not accusing Operation Rescue of doing uh, of bombing abortion clinics, but there were some who were engaged in bombing abortion clinics. And uh, bombing an abortion clinic absolutely stops uh, abortions from taking place in that clinic. No doubt about it. Uh, pragmatically speaking, it works. But do the ends justify the means? Answer, no, they don't. And so... Um, you know, you don't engage in lawlessness uh, in fighting these things. But ultimately, if you think about it, you know, scripturally, Christianity's fight is not primarily, and I'm going to say this in that sense, it's not primarily against um, against abortion, although we have to speak to the abortion issue. It's not primarily against uh, pornography, although we must speak to the pornography issue. And the reason why is because these are sinful behaviors. Now, um, if you want to know my opinion as to how you solve the, uh, the abortion problem and how you solve the, uh, uh, the pornography issue, um, well, first of all, I, I don't mean to sound fatalistic. This side of, uh, of heaven you know this side of you know Christ's return and and uh, our being united with Him and receiving our resurrection bodies which will not sin. Thank the Lord for that. Um, you know we we have to understand that we we deal with sin as a problem as we are all sinners, every single one of us. And so you know I, I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. I am definitely not holier than you. You may be holier than me, but it, it's going to be hard to measure. Um, so you know we don't attack it necessarily in those in those ways um and we've got the further complicated problem in the fact that we live in the United States of America where every single one of us uh, you know shares the sovereignty of the whole nation and so we have to manage the country and so um certain things have to be taken care of from a legislative point of view as far as you know how do you manage people and motivate people so we've got the added um we've got the added complication that here in the United States you know we've we all have a vote. We all have a say. We all have political opinions, and we all have uh, we all have a stake in uh, what laws are passed and what practices are are are, are occurring within the United States. The slavery issue, um, definitely, there were Christians on both sides of that issue, and they were marshalling uh, texts and passages, uh, you know, both for and against slavery, which is an interesting uh, thing in our history. Yet it was it was primarily Christians. Who are the ones who are fighting the slavery issue? Why? Because they saw it as a profound injustice. But at the same time, they were exerting their rights with the with the understanding that uh, all Christians have dual citizenship, if you would. Um, we've got citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, and we have citizenship in the United States of America. And so many times we blur those things. 
but if I I I don't want to sound like I'm ideal ideological, but I am. Um, we are not going to fight and win the battle of abortion on legislation alone. Let's say that uh, uh, you know the next Supreme Court justice that that is put into office happens to be a strict constitutional constructionist. And they deal with the abortion issue, and they overturn the Roe v. Wade decision. Are, is and and so now uh, that kicks uh, the abortion issue back to the states, and some states allow for it, and some states don't. Are we a holier nation because we've decreased the number of abortions? Are we all still sinners? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, truly, the, you know, what's happening in abortion is evil. Truly, what's happening regarding pornography is terrible. The exploitation of women, um, just you know, the the money that's being made on just rank perversity, it shows something about the character of the nation. But it's a symptom of our disease. It's not the disease itself. It's a symptom. So, um, I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and uh, we're going to. Um, read a passage from Acts chapter 19, and I think this has something to do with what we're talking about here. Do you really want to shake up the world? Would you like to stem the tide? Would you like to see a decrease in pornography in the United States, or the consumption of it? Would you like to see a decrease in abortions? Would you like to see um, our nation more in tuned and listening to the voice of Scripture? How is that accomplished? Is it by going and grabbing a baseball bat and a bullhorn and threatening somebody with bodily harm if they don't listen to the voice of God? Or is it preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would say it's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Jesus dies raises himself from the dead three days after he's crucified. And we've got 11 disciples left and a couple of hundred followers, so to speak. There were 500 people who at one time had seen Jesus alive after he was crucified. Church, The early church kept track of him. And they went out into all the world to make disciples. And what did they do? They proclaimed Christ and him crucified for our sins. And... Uh, and dedicated themselves to the public preaching of God's word, the scriptures, and to the apostolic teaching, the prayers, and the fellowship. And um, numerically speaking, the Christians didn't have a chance. They just—they had no chance whatsoever of overthrowing any systems whatsoever. They were officially persecuted by the Roman Church in several persecutions over the next couple of centuries. And yet, within a couple hundred years, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Was that because they were out there preaching against abortion? Telling people to be better? Or was it because they were preaching Christ and Him crucified and the obedience that comes from faith? If all you're going to preach is obedience, then your your message is not a Christian message. I'm sorry. It's not. But if you're going to preach Christ and him crucified and the repentance 
and you're going to preach repentance and belief and trust in Christ and the obedience that comes through that faith, that's what's going to change the world. Now, let me give you a small example of this from Acts chapter 19, verse 23. We read this story about how Paul had spent some time in the city of Ephesus. And um, what did he do while he was there? He taught and preached and proclaimed Christ and him crucified. We know this because Paul, that seemed to be his one-trick pony, the gospel. And in the, in the course of preaching the gospel, he also happened to preach the message that idols were worthless, idols can't hear you, uh, these are false gods, and that Jesus Christ is the one true God in human flesh who came to earth and died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. This was Paul's message. And guess what? It messed things up for those who made their living in merchandising for the local false deity whose name was Artemis. If you're familiar with the ancient world and the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the great temple of Artemis in Ephesus. It was considered uh, quite an architectural and engineering marvel, um, even by today's standards. And this grand temple complex was the pride of Ephesus. Okay? So we read in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, about that time there was no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was the name of Christianity at the time. For a a man named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, who made silver shrines of the goddess Artemis, brought no little business uh, to the craftsmen. he He was doing good business. You know, being a a craftsman, a silversmith in the city of Ephesus in the early part of the first century was a good way to make a living. Okay? These uh, craftsmen, he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul... This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That wasn't his primary message. That was his secondary message. His primary message is that Jesus Christ is the one true God. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. It's quite a speech. When they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him go in. And even some of of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. By the way, you can visit the, the, uh, the theater in Ephesus. It's still there. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is, the, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the, great, of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen and, uh, have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. So here's the deal. What did Paul do? Paul goes into Ephesus, starts off by going to the synagogue that's in Ephesus, and proclaiming to the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that the prophecies had been fulfilled, and that the Messiah had come, and he is Jesus Christ, and he proved his credentials by raising himself from the dead. He also preaches this message to the Gentiles. And actually, Paul stayed quite a, quite a long time in Ephesus, worked as a tent maker, preached on an almost regular basis in the Hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, preaching Christ and him crucified. Everybody that he could talk to, he would talk to and preach the gospel. As a sub-point, he would also point out the fact that idols are made by men, the hands of men and cannot save you. They're deaf, dumb, and blind. What happened? God, the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, takes the Ephesians and begins and basically gives them faith so that a growing number of people in Ephesus go from worshiping Artemis and the false gods of Greek mythology to worshiping the one true God in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for their sins. When that happened, there was no need to go to the temple where Artemis was. There was no need to buy little silver shrines. In fact, they were throwing them away. Did Paul set out with the express intention of setting up a ministry specifically designed to wipe out idolatry? No, he didn't. Was idolatry wiped out through the preaching of the gospel? Yes, it was. In fact, if you were to visit the ruins of the temple of Artemis in Ephesus to this day, there's very little left. Maybe one pillar, and it's in a bog and on the top of the pillar, a stork has made a nest. Nothing remains at the temple of Artemis. What Demetrius, the silversmith, and the craftsman with him feared, that Artemis would be thrown down and no longer worshipped, absolutely came about. But it wasn't because Paul was out there saying, idols are stupid, idols are stupid, don't worship idols, they're dumb. You need to stop worshipping idols. And they got people to stop worshiping idols. That doesn't make any sense. Instead, he proclaimed Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ is the one true God in human flesh. And Christ gave those people faith. And once they put their trust and their faith in Christ, there was no need for idols. So do you want to attack the problem of abortion? Preach Christ and him crucified. And along with that, Proclaim that abortion is murder. 
for truly it is. Proclaim that pornography is adultery, for surely it is. But when we say that murder, adult, uh, abortion is murder, and pornography is idolat is uh, is uh, adultery, we do so to point men sins out to them so that they may despair of their own righteousness and know their need for a savior and when the work of the law has done its thing and that person sees their sin and despairs of their own righteousness and wonders what shall i do you immediately immediately give them the gospel of jesus christ the full and complete forgiveness and pardon of sins won for them by Jesus Christ on the cross, that they might look to him, that he might sanctify them through his word and through his holy sacraments. Then, through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, men will be become sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit and God will curb their appetites for such evil and cause them to repent of such evil. Rather than preaching morals, preach Christ. When you preach Christ, the morals will follow as fruit. But when you preach only morals, you just create Pharisees, not Christians. So that's my take on it. All right, let's see here. Thank you kindly from Jason and Shakopee. Minnesota. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. That was a, kind of a long answer to a short email. No, I'm not long-winded at all. Um, <clears throat> all right. little goofiness today. Um, oh, man. This is up at the Museum of Idolatry. If you would like to watch this video, um, it's called Jesus is a Friend of Mine from the group from the 70s called Sunseed. And I can't figure out if this is polka or some kind of techno, early form of techno Christian rock. Um, and if you saw the video, you'd see the, what these people are wearing is ridiculous. And I put this into the Graveyard of Relevance, which is uh, one of the wings we have at the Museum of Idolatry, the Graveyard of Relevance, which basically shows over and again that when the church pursues relevance, rather than preaching Christ and him crucified, it's just a matter of time before what was relevant today really looks stupid tomorrow. In fact, I've made the charge over and over and over again that relevance is a fickle lover. One day she'll make you feel like the king of the world, and the next day she'll make you look like yesterday's dead leftovers. You know, moldy fish. That's... <laughs> so we're going to play the... Um, we're going to play Sun Seeds, uh, Jesus is My Friend. Here we go. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to live my life as it should be. He taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. Oh, man, this is a silly song. I've had friends before, and I can tell you that. 
He's one who will never leave you flat. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to pray and how to save my soul. He taught me how to praise my God and still play rock and roll. The music may sound different, but the message is the same. It's just an instrument to praise His name. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. You have to see the video on this. You have to go to the Museum of Idolatry and see what these people are wearing. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine. You know, they're trying to look so cool, and yet they look so uptight. And the song is, uh, it's, Jesus is, what what about Jesus is my Lord? Uh, He taught me how to live. He taught me how to do this. He taught me how to save my soul, was one of the lyrics. He taught me how to save my soul. I thought Christ saved my soul without me having to do it. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the... Never mind. Tried to run and hide, but Jesus came and found me, and he touched me down inside. He is like a mountie. He always gets his man. He is like a mountie. He always gets his man. <laughs> and he'll zap you any way he can. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of Okay, I've had enough of this song. <laughs> We're going to go into our first break. If you would like to email me, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com and we'll be right back. That's terrific, Sal. Thank you very much. Beautiful. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn Radio Program including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at newreformationpress.com. 
or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. We're back. Jesus is my friend. He's a friend of mine. He added me to his Facebook profile. We go shopping together. Jesus really knows how to accessorize. (laughs) All right. Well, for the balance of the day today, we got something. Oh man, um, Pastor Lynn Winters has an associate pastor who works with him over at uh, Cornerstone Church in Chandler, Arizona, a purpose-driven church. And uh, we're going to be doing a recent sermon that they did on finances. Yay, finances! Because you know, if you're not properly managing your finances, you're not holy. I don't know if you know this, but if you if you are struggling in with debt and credit card debt and struggling paying your mortgage, well, you're probably going to go to hell. <laughs> I, 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 I say these things tongue in cheek, but you know the the truth is anyway. Uh, one of the things I'm going to do while this sermon is playing is uh, point out to you. All the times that this particular pastor, this isn't Lynn Winters preaching, this is one of his associate pastors. All of the times when this pastor thinks he's a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I'm struggling today. Obviously, I've had too much to drink before starting the show today. Man. All right, so um, we're going to uh, use for that, I have a rim shot. And uh, if you don't know what a rim shot is, it's it's it it. I've got a sampled sound. You know, when somebody tells a joke, you know, uh, a man walks into a bar and said, "Ouch!" <laughs> See, da da. That was a joke. That was funny. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> we're going to institute the use of a rim shot today to help us with this uh, finance sermon, and we'll also we're going to analyze the prayer in this particular sermon too. And uh, without any further ado, here's a sermon on finances from the Simple Sermon series preached at Chandler, Arizona that just finished up. So without any further ado, here we go. Morning, Cornerstone. Where's all the University of Arizona fans? That was pretty pathetic, I gotta say. All right, where's all the Arizona State University fans? Where's the NAU fans? Sorry about last night there uh, at the game. But I'll tell you what, the reason I say that is because I had a problem growing up. Both of my parents went to, graduated from, and got degrees from the University of Arizona. So all you mild cats, I'm sorry, wild cats out there, that's great. But I was an ASU guy. We lived here in the the, uh, Phoenix area, and I knew I was going to be an ASU guy. And I'm not competitive or anything like that. I kept score. I kept score at everything, and it was two for U of A, zero degrees for ASU. So I knew that my sister and I had some work cut out for us. So sure enough, 
About senior year in high school, I looked at my older sister and I knew I was in deep yogurt because she was going to be no help. She was not going to go to college most likely. So I knew it was up to me. So what I did is I went to college. I went to ASU. I got my degree. And then a few years later, I went back and I got my MBA, my master's in business administration. That was so cool. And it was tied. It was two to two. And I have four kids. So I was going to win. I thought that was going to be great. And then my two oldest daughters, who actually you saw up here, these two beautiful tall blondes, my girls, I'm excited. Thank God they look like their mother. I understand. That's okay. There we go. That's first instance of uh, him uh, using humor. Here we go. I knew ASU was finally going to win. They messed up. They didn't go to ASU. They both graduated from and got degrees from Grand Canyon University. Of all places. And so I'm sidling up to my son now going, Hey, son, where are you thinking of going to college, buddy? You know, just trying to just keep, check it out. And the reason I bring that up is because I want you to know something. Our subject today is finances. It's money. There's a whole bunch of people in here that are very educated. Some of you are very educated on finances and money. And I know, I know something about it. I've tried to learn a lot, read every finance book that's out there on money and how to handle it. Wow, that's I'm so happy you've read all these financial books. Because, whew, yeah. You need to learn this in church. Yeah, because, you know, going to church is all about learning about m- money. And I think I kind of know some things about it, but I, I got to tell you, I, I don't know everything. I don't know everything about money, and I don't know everything about life, just like a lot of you. Matter of fact, there's some things that just really kind of torque my jaws something fierce that I haven't figured out yet. And maybe this is like you. Uh, does, does this bother anybody? Why is the word abbreviated so long? There we go, another joke. Why are they called apartments if they're, if they're so close together? I never understood that. Why is there an expiration date on sour cream? I, I don't know. There's some things I just don't get. Why, why when you go to the doctor, does this concern you? You go to a guy who's got a practice. You know, when I'm sick, I want to go to a guy who's already got it figured out and knows what to do. That bugs me. What? Why do they give you a sucker at the bank? I, I wanted to go see our uh, branch manager. I walked in, and there's that little clipboard standing there, so I went in and signed my name to see. And right there on the counter, there's this fishbowl, and in it, there's a bunch of suckers. So I reached in and grabbed one. You know what it said? Dumb, dumb. I mean, there had to be some Freudian deal going on there. So I wasn't sure what that is. But I don't know. I started learning. I tried to learn an awful lot about finances. And people have come to me and said, Bill, you seem to got your act together on finances. You understand a lot of that stuff. How did, how did you get like that? What happened? What was it that went through you? I said, look, I just use good judgment. Good judgment. Okay, how did you get good judgment? Uh, experience. How did you get experience? Bad judgment. Well, isn't that what happens? You get experience. You're learning from your own mistakes. Wisdom is learning from somebody else's mistakes. And that is going to be key to what we're talking about today. Because when we're looking at wisdom, all those books I read don't hold a candle to the wisdom of one book. And that is God's Word. And we're going to go into that today because God, as you know, talks an awful lot about finances. We're going to, we're going to jump into a few of those today. Okay, pause here for a second. You'll notice that uh, we are pretty much four minutes into this sermon on finances, and uh, um, well, 
so far it's been a stand-up comedy routine, hence the rim shots. But now pay attention because he's about to dive into a prayer here. And uh, I consider this to be a great example of the typical evangelical prayer. Lord, we just. Lord, Lord, we just. Just, Lord, we just. And so, you know, those of you who are listening might want to keep a running tally as to how many times he says the word just. Lord, we just. See, after listening to this, I think you'll understand why I think it's a wise idea to have a moratorium on the word just in all prayers. We need to ban it from uh, from our vocabulary. In fact, if uh, if you're uh, listening here, I think this is probably a good argument in favor of actually writing out your prayers ahead of time or uh, praying from a text so that uh, you don't mess it up. But, of course, people think that if you pray a prayer that's already pre-written, that the Holy Spirit cannot possibly use it because it's so stiff and wooden and puts God in the box. Well, I, I, I think those prayers have far more depth than what we're about to hear. Here we go. So before we do that, let's, let's go ahead and pray and let's get started right. Lord Jesus, um, man, we are so thankful to be here today. God, we just lift up this hour to you. Um, we just pray that you would just uh, let the message yes. that you've got... Just hit the hearts of the people. Let them have ears to hear. And the wisdom that comes from your word, God, let not be uh, messed up by the speaker today, God. We just thank you for your love. Thank you for your time. And help us as we go through this this process today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. And that was about, what, 25, 30 seconds. And I think he said the word just seven or eight times. Lord, we just, we just want to just, Lord, just, just. All right. <clears throat> I have in my pocket, this is audience participation time. This is a real $50 bill. No, I'm not giving it away, but it is real. It's a $50 bill. Audience participation. All at the same time, I'm going to ask you something, and you have to shout back to me the answer. It's a one-word answer. On the count of three, you're going to say, is this good or bad? One, two, three, go. Neither. Well, which is it? Neither. If I'm using this to buy illegal drugs, what is it? Bad. If I use it to buy legal drugs at the hospital for my sick daughter, what is it? Good. So is it really this? Or who's got it? How about if it's how you get it and how you use it? How All right, so right off the bat, he's launching into his main point about finances, and it's a moral point. Um, is, it, is this designed to point out your sin and point you to Christ? That's my question. Is he using the law lawfully in a way to convict you of your sin, show you your need for a Savior, show you what a good work is, and comfort you with the soothing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ even died for the sins that you've committed financially? How you get it, maybe that talks to your character and in your integrity. And how you use it, maybe that ta- It's going in my pocket. If, if it's how you use it, it has to do with your spirituality. And we're going to try to get into that today. I always was struggling with finances. I struggled with them about never having enough. Did anybody else have that problem or was it just me? I always thought, man, how come it's... I was always struggling. I was looking at... There had to be $100 bills floating by and how come they weren't coming to me? But I'll tell you... I sure talked a good talk. When I was dating my wife, you can't believe some of the stuff I told her. Well, you guys, you probably can. I told her things like, honey, 
Marry me and you are not going to believe it. We are going to have mansions in the hills. We're going to have nine kids. We had big dreams. I said, we're going to have, you're going to have a maid that is, you're going to have a house so big your maid is, is going to need a writing, a writing vacuum cleaner. How's that? Is that a big house? Honey, you're going to have all this great stuff. And I had to say all that stuff because there was a whole bunch of maggots circling her and I had to cut her out of the herd early or else I was going to lose out. So I had this stuff. I was going to tell my wife on why she needed to, to marry me. And you know what I did as soon as we got married? We moved in to a massive 550 square foot apartment. And it was an incredible apartment. I mean, the construction was great. The walls were so thin that if the guy in the apartment next door changed his mind, we heard it. <laughs> Talking some thin walls. So we had all these problems going through, and but it wasn't quite working. And I was getting frustrated. And then, trying to be one of these new Christian guys as a new married guy, started reading the Bible about what God had to say about money. And I knew I was just going to be blessed by reading all this. You know, if he was really a new Christian and was reading the Bible, um, and when you read it in context, uh, there's just not really, there is no gospel of E.F. Hutton. There is no epistle uh, by Merrill Lynch. Um, There's sections in the wisdom literature that talks about how to wisely handle money. Uh, but there's really not a lot of financial advice in there. That's just really not the main thrust of Scripture. The main thrust of Scripture is about Christ. So I'm having a hard time believing part of this story on on the grounds that if you know your Bible, there just really is, it's not a major theme the way he's making it out to be. Like, you know, if I really want to find out about how to properly handle money, then what I need to do is go and open my Bible. Hmm. And I started with, believe it or not, as I was reading through the Bible, I came to Ecclesiastes. So we're going to jump through a whole bunch of stuff in here. Yeah, Ecclesiastes is in the middle of the book. Middle of the book. So go to Ecclesiastes with me. If you've got your Bibles with you, it's going to be up on the screens as well. This is basically right in the middle. You're going to see uh, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is there. So Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. I read this. Verse, verse, verse 10. It makes me want to go in. Excuse me. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. just want to make sure we're going to read this in context. Okay. Let's, uh, let's hear what he says. I was so excited. Whoever loves money never has money enough. That was not what I wanted to hear. And then it continues. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. One verse out of context. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and the righteous, Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there yet higher ones over them. But is gain for a land land in every way, 
a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied, and with money we satisfy with money. Nor will uh, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the the message of Ecclesiastes is all is vanity. Vanity, vanity, vanity. So is... Ecclesiastes giving us financial advice here, or is it painting a picture of how vain the world is and how it just seems like everything is completely worthless and useless because this world of ours is so screwed up. See, Solomon, the the story behind the book of Ecclesiastes is that he decided not to um, forbid himself anything. And after chasing after everything, he realized it was all just chasing after the wind. The real thing that exists is Christ, is God, it's the Lord. So is Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 giving us principles for money management? No, it's not. And he read it out of context. And it would be, if he really had read through the scriptures, like he said, then he would know that Ecclesiastes really isn't about financial management. But what do I know? I'm just a radio guy. Is that anybody else in here or was that just me? That just irked me. I said, I'm supposed to be learning about all this money thing and I was so broke I couldn't even pay attention. Here we go again. Let alone pay the bills. I was struggling to make money. Let me ask you a question. Same thing I had to look at is, why do you buy the stuff you buy? If you think right now, if you go to your house and you look around at all the... No, a better question is, uh, Pastor, why do you preach the stuff you preach rather than preaching God's word for real in context? The stuff you've got. And it's it's great stuff. There's nothing wrong with stuff. I like stuff. I like nice stuff. Nothing wrong with that stuff. But why do you buy the things you buy? I think it's got to do with some consumerism. We've got Madison Avenue telling us we need it. It's the newest. It's amazing. It's cool. And not only that, our neighbors have it. And their name is Jones, apparently, because we've got to keep up with the Joneses. So we're getting all this stuff, and it winds up becoming, I'll even call it this. I'll call it status. And I heard a great definition of status the other day. It said, people spending money they don't have to buy things they don't really want or need to impress people they don't like. It's status, which is kind of stupid. And you know what? I had it. At one time in my life, I had a Mercedes 500 SEL and a Cadillac Sedan DeVille. And I was driving both of them. Not at the same time, of course, but my wife wouldn't drive either one. She had her minivan that she liked. I wound up, I had my own company for a lot of years. I was a stock trader, did seminars around in Europe and the United States. And, you know, money was cool. I had it. It wasn't a big deal. And I started reading and reading and reading more about what God had to say about money. And it got my attention. Let me ask you this. How did you... How did you learn how to have a great marriage, for those of you that are married? Was it, was it from books? Was it from our parents? And until we start reading, a lot of us take our examples in life from where we are, who's around us. And for a lot of us, I'll tell you, statistically, if you learn to have a great marriage from your parents, about half of us in here are in really uh, bad shape. My folks got divorced when I was seven. And I knew with my wife and I, we talked about this before we got married, we weren't about to get divorced. We wouldn't even mention it. 
We did one of those things that says, we will never go to bed angry. And we, we did that. We never went to bed angry. Uh, although that one time on the fifth day of being awake, it was a really tough time. But we did that never going to bed angry thing. And now I must say that we have had 27 years of marriage and it's been nine of the happiest years of my life. And (laughs) is my wife laughing? Okay. Anyway, we did that. And we learned about that from our parents. Let me ask you this on your finances. If we learn from our parents about finances, some of you, that's really good news. Some of you that that may not be real good news. So the Bible talks so much about it. It is full of wisdom. So let's go there. We're going to now move a little bit to the right. Still in the Old Testament, we're going to go right in your Bible about this much. Okay, that's uh, to one of our minor prophets. Minor prophets is not because they don't have anything important to say. It's because they wrote really small books and they're at the end of the Old Testament. So if you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're a little too far, start leafing to the left a little bit till you get to Haggai or Haggai, depending on what seminary you probably went to. So if we go there to Haggai 1, chapter 1, verse 5, it says this. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. I read that really fast because I didn't care about my ways because my ways were really good in my Mm-hmm. Why do I think I'm going to have to go and look this up in context? <clears throat> Depending on which seminary you went to, Haggai, chapter 1. Let's see what it says. <clears throat> He's reading, let's see here. He's reading verse 5. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Who's he talking to? All right, in context, here we go. Going to verse 1, the beginning of Haggai, or Haggai, depending on which seminary you went to. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. It is. A, is it a time? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough you drink but you never have your fill you clothe yourselves but no one is warm and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes okay now let's uh keep this in context here this is the word of the lord that came to the prophet haggai and he's talking to the israelites in a particular context and uh they were uh, basically laboring and they hadn't considered their ways while you know they were doing these things while the Lord's house lies in ruins. That's the context here. Let's see how uh, this pastor here uses this verse now because uh, he's ripped it out of context. There's no historical context. 
You know, by the way, re- remember my review on the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas? You know, one of the things I said is that if you read the Gospel of Thomas, you find out that it, it's nothing but a bunch of sayings, you know, supposed sayings of Jesus ripped from any historical context. You have no clue when Jesus said these things or where he was when he said them because the, the Gospel of Thomas is into, is into secret information, secret knowledge. Where Jesus said these things and what, you know, and the historical context or the context in which the verse or the saying took place is really irrelevant. That's really what's going on here. This guy's taking this passage out of context, turning it into a pretext, and somehow turning the Bible into some kind of wisdom literature like the Gnostics. You, here's the secret knowledge that you need in order to better manage your finances. And I'm going to quote ber- verses to you out of context. It doesn't matter what the, his- what the context is for these things. You just need to know the secret knowledge. The secret knowledge will teach you how to better manage your finances and will give you the information that you need, the gnosis, so that you can save your soul and have a better life. <clears throat> Sorry. Where did that voice come from? My own eyes? I don't know about you. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. And listen to this. (laughs) You earn wages only to put them in a purse or a wallet or a pocket with holes in it. Anybody else feel that way? Man, I remember the time before. Uh, The the verse is not about you. The the verse, this word of the Lord did not actually come to you personally. This was from the Lord, through the prophet Haggai, to the people who were in exile, the Jews who were in exile while the Lord's house lied in ruins. This isn't about managing your finances. Or direct deposit, I'd get my paycheck and I would run to the bank on Friday because I had to get that thing deposited because I had to cover the check I wrote for groceries on Thursday night. No matter what raise I got, I tried to get that to the bank right away because we had already spent it. I never had enough. I didn't love money, of course. If I loved money, I'd have a lot of it, right? So it must not be me. It wasn't what I was spending, of course. It must be something else. And then I read stuff like this. And after the end of it, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Verse 7 is exactly the same as verse 5. Yeah, and who was the Lord talking to? This wasn't about managing your finances. That's not the context of the prophet Haggai. Ugh. Not that many places in the Bible do they say the exact same thing in two out of three verses. I think that's kind of important, kind of like when the Bible says, verily, verily. It's like, listen up, i got something important to say. Consider your ways. And I was wondering, well, what ways are those? Is it how I'm spending my money? Uh, the passage wasn't about you, and it's not about managing your finances. So I started doing some studying in here, and I got, I got a little uptight about a few things. Because I was talking about money, I had all these dreams and great goals of things that I wanted to do and places I wanted to go and things I wanted to have, which I don't see anything wrong with those folks. However, there's an issue of the heart that we're going to talk about today. That's what I want you to key on as we go through some of these. Uh, yeah, the problem is, is that all of us have a deceitfully wicked heart. We're sinful by nature. Our sin problem is really, really deep, all the way down to the part where God says that by nature we all have hearts of stone. Things. I want you to look at the heart. And how do you feel about some of this? If sometimes I know there are people in a crowd this big, as we start talking about this, some of you are just going to tighten up a little bit. And it's a matter of your heart. Let's think that through a little bit. Sure, that you've got to do some things to handle money correctly. You've got to track. You've got to do that dreaded B word, the budget. 
when your when your lifestyle is smacking right up on your income, you're are you, are you giving us any passages here to support uh, that we Christians must keep a budget? Now, I, I mean, it's a great tool um, if used properly. It's a great tool. I've seen it misused too. You're going to have a problem if you don't change something. One thing I recommend you don't do. Don't try to live the lifestyles of the rich and famous when you are neither. Really? I, I, I have to go to church to learn something as ridiculously silly as this? It doesn't work very well. Because what you've got happening is, cute phrase I learned a long time ago, it says if, you're, if your outflow is more than your income, your upkeep is going to be your downfall. That's found in the uh, book of Proverbs chapter 97. Look it up in your Bible. Chapter 97, Book of Proverbs, chapter 97. And so many people look at that cute little phrase, that's so cute, but think it through. There's some interesting things you can use. By the way, there is no chapter 97 in the Book of Proverbs. Use from cliches and good, uh, good little things like that. There's another thing that I find fascinating. Consumerism is huge in the United States. Some of you have been to other countries. You've been around the world, and most of us, when we travel, we go to these... We go to these great touristy places. But if you've never been into Africa where tourists don't go, or South America or Central America, you will not believe your eyes. TV does not do a good enough job explaining the poverty that we have and the wealth that we have in the United States, even though a lot of us say, I don't feel wealthy. Do you, you know that the people in the United States, I read this, on welfare in the top 2% income bracket in the, United, in the, in the world people on welfare in the United States. That is amazing. We've got the cleanest water in the world and we spend more on bottled Well, anyway, we can go into all that stuff. There's something else I like to talk about as we look at how we teach our children. It's something I like to call the toddler disease. Some of you moms know this well. You got two kids and they're playing with their toys and this guy's playing with this toy and this one over here is playing with this toy. The one over there puts the toy down and goes to play with something else. Not a problem. Playing with something else. It's cool. Until this toddler sees that toy. What happens when he toddles on over and gets that toy? And when this one turns and sees the toy that he has no interest in anymore, that he used to have, what happens? Beeline over there, and it's all one word they usually yell at. What is it? Mine! It's mine! And if this is a passive child he's taking away from, just sits there and screams and the other child... But when there's two type A personalities, a fight ensues. And if one finally gets it, they bonk the other one on the head with it and wins. Um, is he preaching from the scriptures here? Is he really teaching us what God's word is saying? He's giving us moralizing ideas. And yeah, I agree. It's yeah, sinful and wicked. Uh, shows you how wicked our children are, even from birth. They come out self-centered. Um, but that... <clears throat> I don't understand how this is a Christian sermon yet. We kind of do that in life, but that's another sermon. I'm going to ask you something. What do we normally see the mature adults now do at that? We do the right thing. We say, little Johnny, stop that. Be nice. Share. Be kind. It's okay. Share your things. Be generous. Have love for each other. I wonder, do we take our own advice as we get older? And what we try to teach our kids. So is that what the sermon's about? Taking our own advice? Be nice. Share. Don't be so self-focused. Share. 
See, do we take our own advice because... When there's people in need, the people that don't have, are we able to be generous? Are we able to share? You know... Okay, that's a good point. Why don't you drive it home? Point out our sin and then point us to Christ. Point out our sin. Point us to Christ. No, he's pointing us to ourselves, by the way. And there's people that always talk about this. And the, when the Bible talks about this, they say it much more precisely than we do. And I want to go to a little bit further to another of the Old Testament minor prophets. It's called, um, well, it's, it's the big Italian prophet that most of you have heard of, Malachi. If we could go a little bit to the, uh, the right. All right, Malachi is fine too. Malachi, it'll be up on the screens. Chapter 3, starting at verse 8. This is where it gets a little intense, guys. This is as I was learning. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, we got a verse that's going to be really intense. Uh, so far, he's quoting everything out of context. Uh, my goodness. Okay, let's continue. Learning and listening to this, this is where I got a little uncomfortable. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Ah. <sighs> Somehow, how did I know that we would end up there? Just chapter 3. <clears throat> context, context, context. And I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be... A swift witness. Who is he speaking to? Behold, I got to back up into verse one here. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Nice prophecy regarding the end times, uh, regarding Jesus Christ's forebearer, forerunner, John the Baptist, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offspring of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of, the, of old, as in former years. So far, this chapter, um, chapter 3, let's see... Uh, Malachi, not Malachi, Malachi chapter 3 begins when talking and focusing on Jesus Christ, literally. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Repent. That's literally what's the message here. But you say, how shall we return? Will man, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say... How have we robbed you in tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. So, all right, who is he speaking with? He's talking to Israel. The tithe is a tax. 
It's required if you're living in Israel. Are we as New Testament Christians under the tithe? No, we're not. We're not under the law. We give according to what God has given us. Tithe is just a recommendation. It's not it's not a hard and fast rule. <sighs> anyway, I think you got the gist of this particular sermon. He's moralizing, but he's not preaching the law in a way to convict of sin, and he's not preaching God's word in context, and therefore not doing what Malachi just did, entreating and beseeching after the ex- after exposing sin and calling it what it is. The Lord says, return, repent, and I will return to you. That's what this is about. That's what the passage is about. But he's dug out the financial principles and like the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas is just giving you gnosis, giving you information. But he's not giving you the Gospel of Jesus Christ and he's not giving you Jesus Christ. I think you got the picture. So we will leave off there. Thanks for sticking with us as we went a little bit over today. Um... If you would like to email me and say that uh, you, you think that the Bible is absolutely the best book in the world regarding how to manage your finances, that you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until Monday, have a great weekend and may the Lord bless you.